Well, good morning. As you know, over the past few weeks, Caitlin and I have been traveling uh, all over the world, it seems, together with her family. Uh, In the past few weeks, we've been to England. Uh, This is us outside the Canterbury Cathedral, the pilgrimage site and famed destination of Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales poems. I know I had to read them in high school. I don't know if any of you had to read them along the way. We've been to Rome. That's us standing outside of the Pantheon, a building that uh, dates back to the first century B.C., Uh, We have been to Greece. This is us on the Areopagus uh, in Athens. Right behind us is the Acropolis, this big structure there, which again is thousands of years old. Um, This is also the very place, the very hill on which Paul addressed the people of Athens in Acts 17. It was really cool to be in that very same place. Uh, We've been to the island of Malta. This is the place where in Acts 28, Paul is shipwrecked uh, and kind of does some recovery and that kind of thing. Some interesting stories there. Uh, And finally, we went to Spain. This is a picture of us in the stunning Sagrada Familia, a masterpiece of a church building, beautiful beyond words, that has been under construction since the late 1800s and still isn't finished being built. Uh, It is a work in progress, but aren't we all? Uh, And so it has been a very full few weeks, adventurous and enriching, and it's good to be back here with all of you. And um, this place may not be a a grand cathedral, the Athenian Areopagus, or a centuries-long construction project, but let me tell you something true. This little community in Federal Way, Washington, is the people of God. We are part of what God is doing. This is a place where the Word of God is proclaimed, and we are part of God's not decades or centuries, but millennia, eternity-long project to restore the world and establish His kingdom. And so it is good to be here with you today. It's a good place to be together this morning uh, as we've each made maybe not our Canterbury Trail pilgrimage, but our own little Sunday weekly pilgrimage to this place to gather and worship together and hear God's word. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, there towards the end of, of the, the book. Um, uh, the book of Titus is where we're headed this morning, and for the rest of the month of June, we'll be wandering through this little letter that Paul wrote. As I'm planning sermons and things like this, I always try to have kind of a balanced diet 
so to speak, as we're reading and reflecting on Scripture together. Uh, Toward the end of last year, some of you may remember that we spent several weeks in the Old Testament looking at Israel's feasts and things like that. Throughout most of this year, we've been wandering through the Gospels, looking at the life of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus as examples of what it is to be a table in the wilderness. Uh, During the summer, up and coming, we usually spend some time in the Psalms, reading and reflecting on those. And so I thought that for the month of June, we could spend some time in one of the New Testament letters. It's been a while since we spent time in one of the New Testament letters, and Titus is this short little letter. For some of you, as you're opening up there, it may even only take up one page spread in your Bible. It's a very short little letter, but it is a powerful little letter with a lot to say to us today as we learn to live as God's people in the world, as a table in the wilderness, so to speak, this image we've been exploring for many weeks. So today, I'm just going to read Paul's introduction and offer a little bit of an overview for us. And then for the rest of the month, we'll work our way through the rest of the letter. So hear the word of God, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your goodness that you call us toward. I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the opening words of this little letter to Titus sets the stage for everything that is to come in this letter. But before we dive into how Paul opens his letter, uh, we need some context to see what it is that Paul is really saying here. And so the questions I want to put before us this morning are, what culture is Paul addressing as he writes to Titus? What culture is Paul addressing as he writes to Titus? And then secondly, what message does Paul have for that culture? So what is the culture and what is the message that Paul is bringing? These are the two things that will help us see what Paul is saying as he begins this letter. So first, what is the culture 
that Paul is writing to. Scott McKnight is a renowned New Testament scholar. Recently, uh, last few years, wrote a book with his daughter. Her name is Laura Beringer. Uh, and, and together, their book opens with these words. They write, culture is important. The culture in which we live teaches us how to behave and how to think. We learn what is right and wrong, good and bad, by living in a culture that defines these things. We learn our moral intuitions, our beliefs, our convictions, whatever term you want to use, in community. We learn these things in relationship with others. Culture socializes us into what is considered proper behavior. So the culture that we live in, whatever culture it is that we find ourselves in, is our primary teacher. It informs what we think of what is good and what is bad. It informs the things that we desire and move towards, right? If you value knowledge and learning, it's probably because you grew up in a culture that emphasized knowledge and learning. If you value money and wealth, it's probably because you have grown up in a culture that emphasizes money and wealth and getting to those things. If you value appearance and status, it's probably because you grew up in a culture that emphasized those things. On and on it goes. Our values come from the culture that we have grown up in in. Whether secular culture, church culture, the culture of our family, the culture of our friends, uh, this is the stuff that forms us. It's the thing that we grow up in and live in and that teaches us what to value. And so throughout Paul's letters, he writes to all different kinds of cultures. And he addresses different churches and different individuals according to the culture that they are in, right? So many of the churches that he writes to have this shared Jewish culture shaped by the story of Israel and God, formed by the texts of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings. You can see this in letters like Romans, or Galatians, where, where Paul has lengthy passages quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures, quoting from the Old Testament, uh, applying the stories from there to the people that he's writing to, because they're familiar with these stories, and they value these texts, and they know them. And so Paul references them, because that's their culture. Sometimes Paul writes to a, a mixed audience, a mixed culture with Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. You can see this in letters like the Corinthians or Ephesians, where Paul does reference some of the Old Testament scriptures, but also has a lot of emphasis on unity across differences, right? Being one body, uh, being made into a new person, a new humanity, on and on it goes. Um, This letter to Titus that we're reading and looking at is unique. 
and that Paul is addressing a thoroughly Gentile, and not only that, outright pagan culture. This is a culture that is not at all formed by or even aware of the story of Israel, the texts of the Hebrew Scripture. As we look through the book of Titus, we will find no references to the Old Testament because the people Paul is writing to don't know the Old Testament, right? If we look one verse ahead of where we stopped reading, uh, Titus 1 verse 5, we see that Titus is in Crete, all right? Here's a map of the first century Mediterranean world, uh, and Crete is right there, this little island, uh, or actually a large island compared to all the other little ones that are just above it, um, but this island there off the coast of Greece. Now, on our trip, we did go to Greece. We did not get to visit Crete while we were traveling through Greece, but I did learn some of the background of Crete uh, as I was reading up on Greek history and, and, and culture and mythology and things like that. And there are two stories in particular that I'd like to share, which I think help us understand some of the culture that has formed the people of Crete. So we did not get to visit Crete, uh, but we did go. One of the stops that we had was in Olympia, where the original Olympic Games were played. Uh, we saw the ancient stadium uh, where the Olympic Games took place. This right here is the track uh, of it, so that panoramic shot. So, uh, you know, you head down on one side, you loop around, come back the other. That's the track where the Olympic races would take place. Those green hills on the sides are where crowds would gather to watch what was happening. It was amazing. We actually got to um, run a lap uh, around the original Olympic Stadium. That feels like an accomplishment uh, for me. Um, but, but anyways, so this is the original place of the Olympics. But here's the thing. The Olympics were not originally primarily about sports and competition. Uh, they were originally a religious festival in honor of the Greek gods. Uh, this is seen by the fact that here's a map of that area. Uh, you can see the stadium in the top right part of that image. Uh, this is seen by the fact that just to the left of it is this whole area called the sanctuary. And it's filled with a number of temples, altars, shrines to various gods, the largest of which is the temple of Zeus right there in the middle. Right? Uh, this is all right there next to the Olympic Stadium. And we wandered around some of these structures and the crumbled remains of them. Here uh, that is um, a picture that Caitlin took of the remains of where the Temple of Zeus stood. I don't think that column is original. It's reproduced, so we can kind of get a picture of what it is. But if you walk around it, you see pieces of these columns that have fallen over, and they're, they're there. And it used to be this massive structure, and people would wander around, and it was this very religious moment. So here's the story about Zeus, all right? 
Zeus's father, according to Greek mythology, was the titan named Kronos. Kronos was a paranoid god who was afraid that his children were going to overthrow him. So, after each one of them was born, he took care of things by promptly eating them and swallowing them whole, right? He was a cannibalistic god. Um, Rhea, who is Zeus's mother, was finally fed up with Kronos, her husband, eating their children. So when Zeus was born, she hid him in a cave on an island away and instead brought Kronos a rock swaddled in cloths and Kronos, eager to get rid of his competition, swallowed it whole so quickly he didn't even realize it wasn't the baby that had just been born, that it was just a rock, right? This is the mythology behind all of this. And so hidden away, Zeus grows up and eventually did come to overthrow his father. And the place of that battle, allegedly, is Olympia. And that's why this temple was built there, where the Olympics would eventually take place, right? So what does all this have to do with Crete, where Titus is? Well, Crete is an island of caves. Crete is the island, allegedly, where Zeus was hidden away for all of those years. This is one of the primary stories that fills the background of people who've grown up in Crete. The people that Titus is working with, this is their origin story, right? This is the island where Zeus hid away to deceive his father, Kronos, and eventually overtake him and destroy him on and on. Now, there's another story as well, perhaps also related to Crete's many caves. It's the story of the myth of the Minotaur, right? You guys heard of this at all? This is this creature that's part human, part bull. It lives by devouring human flesh. That's a friendly fellow. And in order to keep people safe from the Minotaur, there is this complex labyrinth that was constructed underground to keep the Minotaur trapped. And after this conflict that occurred between Crete and Athens, uh, Crete forced Athens to offer as tribute seven children and women. Some sources say every year, some say every few years, whatever the case, offer up seven children and women to send into the labyrinth to feed the Minotaur and keep it at bay, all right? That's another origin story from the people of Crete. So these are some of the stories that form the ethical background of the Cretan people, right? It is a place of deception where the chief god was hidden away to deceive and eventually destroy his father, It's a place of violence where an evil beast lurked and enemies were fed to it. That's Crete. No wonder the Cretan poet Epimedes wrote in the 6th century BC, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts and idle bellies. 
right? This is what a very own poet from there said about the people there, right? Their gods and leaders were violent liars. So this is what Crete was known for. Violent people, deceivers. This is the place where Titus is charged to continue the ministry that began with Paul. What a job, right? Those are the people that Titus is ministering to. This is the culture of Crete. So the second question, what is the message that you bring to a culture like this? A culture that does not know God, does not know any of the stories about God, Their background is one of deception and violence, on and on. A culture formed by deception, violent myths, a culture that is clueless about the one true God and his people. Where do you even begin? We don't have a record of any of Paul's sermons to the people of Crete. But we do have a record of the very first sermon that Paul preached before a fully pagan Greek audience. We see it in Acts chapter 14. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are in a place called Lystra, where they encounter a man who was lame. Through their ministry, this man is healed. Uh, they, They tell him to stand up, and so he jumps up and begins walking. It's this amazing moment that occurs, and when the people see this, they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas uh, as if they were the gods, Hermes and Zeus. They even begin to prepare sacrifices to offer for them. And when this happens, they respond with these words. Here is their message to a thoroughly pagan people. Acts 14, beginning in verse 15. They say, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. This is the message that they bring to the people. Notice how Paul and Barnabas don't quote from Scripture here. If you look at the chapter before, Acts 13, they're speaking to a Jewish audience, and there's lengthy quotes from Scripture as Paul uh, instructs them and, and touches on the passages and things that they're familiar with. This is a group that has mistaken them for Zeus and Hermes. They don't know the Hebrew Bible, but this is the message they bring to them. They don't point to the Ten Commandments that tell us not to have other gods. They don't quote from any of the prophets who condemned the people for idolatry. Why not? Because they don't know the Scriptures. So what do they do instead? They tell them about the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea, 
and all that is in them. They talk about creation and the world they're living in. And they acknowledge that in the past, people apart from Israel did not know God. But even so, they said that this God has not left himself without a witness in doing good. He's given you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, filled you with food and your hearts with joy. He has not left himself without a witness in doing good. I love that. Right? In this pagan context where people are not aware of the stories of Scripture, they don't point to the Bible. Instead, they point to people's experience of goodness. Their experience of goodness. Have your needs been met? They ask. Have you ever experienced joy? They asked. This experience is from the one true God. This experience is from the living God. He has not left himself without a witness in doing good. And so the message that Paul brings to a pagan audience is one of goodness. He talks to them about the things that are good. He does that here in Acts 14, and this is the very message that we will see throughout the letter to Titus in this pagan place of Crete. Just a quick glance through the letter makes this abundantly clear. Paul begins by instructing Titus to appoint elders in towns throughout the island. And he describes the kind of people that these elders ought to be. And among these qualities is that they must be those who love what is good. Those who love what is good. Paul goes on to actually quote that poet, Epimedes, and tells Titus to rebuke the people of Crete who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good, right? That's what the Cretans were known for. In chapter 2, Paul begins to address and give instructions for the variety of people in the community, men, women, older, younger, slaves, free, and he tells them to teach one another what is good, he tells them to set an example by doing what is good. And he goes on to say, because Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then in chapter 3, Paul tells the people to be ready to do whatever is good. And all of this ultimately builds in chapter 3 toward a proclamation of God's goodness. In verse 4, he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Why? Because he's good. 
And then in the final verses of the letter, Paul says a couple of more times that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And finally, that our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Have you gotten the point yet? Right? Do you see the theme? Right? Do you get the message? Paul is very clear. At least nine times in this short letter, Paul calls the people to do good and to look upon and consider the goodness of God. So in a culture that's unfamiliar with God, unfamiliar with Scripture, Paul does not point to Bible passages and stories, but rather to goodness. And he calls the church to be a people and a place of goodness. And this brings us back to the opening words of the letter that we began with. And so Titus chapter 1, first few verses, let's look back over them briefly with all of this context in mind. Verse 1, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Let's stop there. This verse, the very first verse of the letter, contains a word that is charged with centuries of theological debate. It is this word, elect. God's elect. Tons of doctrine has developed out of this little word. There's this idea that arose largely in the 16th century that God predestines and chooses or elects some people for salvation and perhaps not others. And when this was initially kind of emerging as as an idea, it it was meant to be a a comforting thing, right? A, A comforting and an encouraging thought. Hey, God has chosen you, right? This is good. You are elect. But eventually this idea, as it continued to develop, became a source of great anxiety. As people began to wonder, am I elect or not? Have I been chosen or not? And this gave way in the centuries that followed to the evangelistic movements of making sure you were saved. And the question would often be presented, some of you have heard it, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? Heaven or hell, right? What would happen to you? If you died tonight, uh, I once heard a preacher go on and emphatically ask the audience, but how do you know that you know that you know that you're saved? Beckoning them for some kind of response. And as you actually think about that sentence, I don't really know what it means. But nonetheless, he just kept on asking and, and in an attempt to perhaps give people confidence, continually threw them into doubt about God, his love for them, their future with God. This little word, elect, 
And all the theology that developed from it for the last few centuries has shaped our understanding of God, of salvation, of eternity. But I actually think that all of this theological debate from the last few centuries actually misses the point of what Paul is saying here. Paul, when he talks about God's elect, is far less concerned about the question, if you die tonight, where will you go? And far more concerned with the question, if you don't die tonight, how will you live? If you don't die tonight, how are you going to live? Because that's ultimately what it means to be God's elect. You see, God has chosen, elected his people. But what has he chosen them for? To be elect, to be chosen by God, is to be someone who God has called to live well and to do good. Right? Paul begins the letter by referring to God's elect, whose knowledge of the truth leads to what? Godliness. And he then spends the rest of the letter spelling this out by calling them over and over and over to do good, to be eager to do what is good, to receive the goodness of God that has appeared among us. To be God's elect is to be called to live a good life. A life that is shaped and formed by good things. All of this is because God is good. Which verse 2 continues with. Paul goes on to write, The hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now it is appointed season, has been brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Can you imagine how that would land on the ears of someone who grew up in Crete? God, who does not lie. Right? Their origin story is one of Zeus, who through deception was hidden away in a cave and eventually arose to destroy his father, and on and on it goes. Their understanding of what God is is a one who just does whatever it wants, who deceives, who fights, who destroys. But Paul says God does not lie because God is good. This God who we're telling you about is good. He's not a deceiver. He's not one who comes to destroy and overthrow. He is one who is good. He does not lie, and he's promised before the beginning of time eternal life, this hope that we have. So this is what Paul is writing to the people about. Live good lives that point to our good God. Live good lives that point to our good God. 
That book that I quoted from at the very beginning uh, by Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Beringer, uh, that began with this idea of culture is important. Culture shapes everything about us. The book is about a church. The title of the book is A Church Called Good. They actually use the Hebrew word, a church called tov. But the book's title is A Church Called Good. Why? Because the church is meant to be a culture of goodness in the world. We're meant to live in such a way that points people to the goodness of God. And so that's what we're called to. And Paul makes it clear not to earn anything, not to check our boxes and and, and get things. We live that way because this is who God is. And we're being transformed into the image of God. And so in the next few weeks, we'll continue exploring this. But I want to say very simply, you don't have to be a great Bible scholar. You don't have to have all of the answers to be a witness to the kingdom of God. All that we're called to do, especially in a culture that's unfamiliar with God and that cares very little about his word, is to live well. And to live in a way that shows the world the goodness of God. May we be that people who live well and live good lives that point to our good God. Amen.